Internet, what is up? Well, it's Wednesday, and if you didn't catch last week's episode, it was with the wonderful Brittany May. She runs Point Firearms Instruction, and she's always a riot when she joins us on the cast. I have a great time listening and editing and laughing my ass off. I never for the life of me would have thought the words beta bitch male would come out of Brittany May's mouth, but it happened in that episode, and I urge everyone to go check it out. It is almost Labor Day weekend. Where did the summer go? I've been noticing that the mornings and nights here in Wyoming have been a little more crisp. I think fall's coming around the corner soon, and that means hunting followed by ski and snowboard season, of which I am a very big fan. I like to strap pieces of wood to my feet and slide up and down the snow. It is a very good pastime of the people that live in this valley, Several of my friends also do it, and that brings us to today's sponsor, which is Front Country Foundation. Who and what are they? It is a 501c3 veteran nonprofit that is run by our local friend here. His name is Cam Fields. If you haven't checked out his episode with the cast, he did one earlier in the spring. I believe it was episode 31, where we went through his experiences as a Navy corpsman And coming out of that and dealing with PTS and how he started healing through backcountry snowboarding. So his foundation likes to bring veterans into the woods, teach them how to ski or snowboard in terms of getting into the backcountry, avalanche awareness, how to navigate, how to deal, just having a good environment to talk things through with like-minded people and individuals. And they are currently trying to fundraise to get trips set up for this winter as it's fall and winter's right around the corner. So if you're into that, go check out Cam's organization. It is frontcountryfoundation.org. Over there, you will see their mission statements and how to donate to them. If you want to hit them up, you can talk to them at the Front Country on Instagram. Okay, that wraps that up. And let's fucking G.O. Oh yeah. Yeah. Little brass monkey to get your podcast going. If you hadn't noticed with the intro, this week is a little different. Our ginger leader is not here with us today. Brian is off traveling the world, doing Brian things, trying to find a wife probably. Who knows? But yeah, this week... We didn't have one recorded for you. He was super busy in California getting podcast stuff recorded for the next couple episodes. I think maybe with Nick Betts and someone else, but I don't want to say too much about that, but we'll see. So you guys get me this week, and sorry, not sorry. I've hosted a couple of the Weapons Freeze with Brian, but never by myself. So we're all along for the ride on this one, guys. We'll we'll see how it goes. It was brought to my attention from several listeners that 
no one actually really knows who I am or what my background is or how I came about to get into this crew of random weirdos that is Lone Element. So I guess we should dive into that. Who is Kato? Oh, geez, that's a fucking mixed bag of questions. Um, yeah, my name is Alex Simpson. I am the producer of this podcast. You guys have heard me on several episodes. If you didn't know, I was born in Hong Kong. I was raised there for years, and our family was lucky enough to have dual citizenship and a house in the States in Wyoming. So when I was little, we used to spend winters and summers in Wyoming, and then the rest of the school year in Hong Kong. So I'm very much a dual outdoors city kid. That being said, I absolutely hate being and living in a city and would rather be in the outdoors all the time, as most people probably do. Yes, I am Asian and not in like the American sense of the word where, oh, I'm Asian, but I grew up in New York and I don't speak any of the mother tongue languages, specifically talking about Italians in New York where they're all like, oh, I'm Italian. And it's like, okay, cool. Do you speak Italian? No. Then you're not Italian. You're American, which is not a bad thing because everyone's great and the U.S. is a fantastic country and we're all a melting pot. But in terms of Asians, yeah, I am an Asian through and through. I have all the Asian tendencies. I like to eat rice. I hate certain people. I like to bargain for things and get good deals on items. I sometimes drive horribly, and if you don't like or take offense to anything that I just said, because stereotypes are a real thing, go ahead and shoot us a message, info at loanelement.com, and I will gladly have a civil conversation with you about how your skin is way too thin, and you should probably go see a therapist, because life is pretty much one big joke, and we're all going to die anyway. So, lighten up a little, people. Let's see, what else about me? Um, Before I worked with Brian, I worked at the local ski factory, which is Igneous Skis and Snowboards. We do a lot of custom manufacturing in terms of, it's like a tailored suit. You would basically come to us and be like, I want this shape and style and weight and flex and this top sheet. And we'd basically bespoke you a custom ski or snowboard. And that was something that I noticed when I was little going around the mountains here. I would see people on these wood skis that had no logos on them. They were just straight wood top sheets really low profile, and everyone that was riding these skis and snowboards were absolutely mental in terms of what they were skiing, their attitudes towards being in the mountains. A lot of these people were guides, Jackson Hole Air Forcers. If you don't know what that is, there's a great movie called Swift, Silent, and Deep where you can go learn about this ski fraternity in our valley. Go check it out. But Seeing these wood skis and snowboards growing up in the mountains, I was like, oh man, what are those? There's no logo on them. Who makes them? And you'd have to like ask around. And I finally figured out it was this local dude named Michael Paris. And so when I was done in New York with college and I was just like burnt out on the city, I was like, I'm going to go to Jackson and just fucking be a dirtbag ski bum for a while. As everyone does, I'll just do it for a season and see what happens, right? 
So roll up into town, figure out where the ski factory is and just show up and start like, Hey Mike, I want to help you out. I want to sweep floors. I want to do this. You guys make rad shit. How to like, I want to be part of the cool kid club, right? With all the wood skis. So I swept floors there for that first winter and just tuned skis for him in terms of the demo fleet. And I absolutely loved it. I loved working with my hands at the end of the day, there was like a tangible sort of result to your efforts. And I found that really rewarding, especially when people would come in and they're like, dude, these were rad. These were the best things I've ever ridden. And they'll start like talking about what they would want to see in a pair of skis and would get their mind going. And it was this like really cool group of like creatives that would channel their outlet into skiing and snowboarding. And this was way different to me. This was like a small community doing really cool things, designing things how they want specifically for their purposes, for their area. And to me as a person that came from like an artistic background and going to a design school, this totally was something that captured my interest in terms of a process from start to finish of creating like an, like a piece of, we call it kinetic art which is how we really saw it is we're crafting a brush for the rider to leave their mark upon a temporary canvas, which would be the side of a mountain. And that whole process to me was absolutely brilliant and gave me like this foundational understanding of design and tweaks and iterations and how that never ends in the pursuit of perfection. So I've always appreciated that my formative years in this valley were spent working at the ski factory, doing being a dirtbag, but essentially learning these nuanced facets of the design aspects and how that eventually affects the user's experience, whether it be good or bad. And so I started taking this really like anal retentive approach that we used at the factory and applying it to all the gear and equipment that I was using in terms of mountain biking, clothing, camping, rock climbing, hunting, and like, oh, what is this backpack? What does this do? Why does this do it this way? Why did they do it that way? Does it work if I want to modify it to do this? And so I started looking around at all these different people that were innovating in that space of just hobby equipment. And at the time, I was also working at a local gun store, and I saw these, I think they're really shitty, like Ruger or Savage guns that came in, but they had this particular camo pattern on it that, one, it looked really cool. Two, the colors were spot on for the area that we were in, in terms of sagebrush, greens, high alpine, that sort of shit. And three, it was a use of mimicry patterns and digital patterns that I hadn't seen before and neither had any of my friends seen before. Because at the time, it was all digital a la ACU piece of shit, or it was multi-cams, M81s, that sort of thing. And this new pattern that we saw in these guns was like, what? What is this? And we started looking into it, and of course, lo and behold, it was designed by Brian Bishop, the fucking ginger friend now. But at the time, I didn't know who the fuck he was, but I was like, who's this guy? He's designing this? Where's he from? Oh, Jackson, that's why it works really well for our area. 
And we hit him up and started asking him about his patterns and whatnot to see if we could get them. Are they available? Who else is going to get them? And there was a limited run that was done with Beyond that like no civilians could really get to because they sold out too quickly. But that was basically my first introduction to who Brian Bishop was, was through his camo pattern. And I'm just going to go on a little rant about camo real quickly because I was basically, I grew up rattle canning my friend's airsoft guns for money. So I've been spray painting weapon looking things for quite a while now, like 20 plus years. And this was the first camo that we actually saw and we're like, holy shit, this, this works. This will work. This is the right color. It wasn't just like a knockoff of M81 or a knockoff of whatever tricolor chocolate chip that's been rescaled and formatted and had like little design inserts that made it fashionable. That's another thing. Okay, so we're going to talk about this real quick. This conversation got brought up with several people I speak to on a recent basis. And that is camouflage is no longer really camouflage in some opinions. It has turned more into a fashion statement. And here is my argument for that, right? So back in the day, uniforms for soldiers were brightly colored so that your commander that's sitting up on the hill can see who his troops were and who can see who the enemy's troops were. So you have the red coats, which are the British, you have the French and grays, you have the Americans in blues, you have the Russians in blues and whatever colors, and you had all these different people wearing really brightly colored shit, which which I don't know if you know, but bright colors and trying to not get shot probably don't mix because your attention gets really drawn to bright colors. And this was something that they started to figure out. So there's been documented cases of troops mid-battle smearing mud over their uniforms to try and break up the silhouette and the bright colors of their fucking uniform so they don't get seen, basically, right? And so I started looking into it, and I was like, okay, so who are the first people to do, like, camouflage uniforms, right? And it turned out it was actually the French who started doing solids and earth-toned colors in their uniform. And this happened at the tail end of World War I. So you had people painting solid-colored uniforms, basically khakis, olive drabs, grays, hunter greens, and that sort of shit in order to match their environment. And that's what camouflage is, right? It's a way for something to blend into their environment, whether it's disruption of outline or color mimicry or thermal signature or any of that stuff. And what we get now is everyone and your mom developing their own camo patterns that are basically just pretty textile patterns and aren't camouflage. Yet, they are marketing them specifically for hunters and athletic people as camouflage. And I don't want to name too many names, but like the resurgence in Vietnamese tiger stripe camo patterns in terms of a fashion statement is so blatantly obviously a fashion choice rather than a concealment choice that I don't know why people would like be willing to even entertain the idea that it is a legitimate, a legitimate useful pattern for hunting or for whatever concealment application that you want, right? And that then brings us to our next point. 
are you wearing a camouflage specifically to conceal yourself or so you can identify yourself from someone else? Because basically a fashion statement is wearing something to identify yourself or associate yourself with a certain mise-en-scene, if you will, with your identity and whatnot, right? So that's when we come into militaries adopting uniforms in specific patterns to designate their specific troops. So you'd have Germans wearing gray and flectarn. You'd have the Brits wearing khakis and greens with the Canadians and the other Anzac troops. You had Americans wearing OD and later on frog skin, but they couldn't wear that in Germany because it looked like flectarn, so you'd get shot. And so we come to this point of like, where, where does that come to nowadays? So if you look at any modern warfare footage, like specifically the shit that's coming out of Ukraine now, and you're looking at what the people are wearing. You have like multiple Russian units. Some are wearing their Russian camo. Some are just wearing solid colors. A lot of them have taken up their own shit to like wear or they don't know because they're pulling shit out of surplus so nothing ever matches. And then you have the Ukraines who have their uniform and now have civilians fighting, and how do you associate them with being a friendly troop and then having the same... It's like, okay, so what, are we all wearing greens? Are we all wearing khakis? The enemy's wearing greens. Wait, hold on, we have certain troops that are wearing multicam, but then you have Russian Wagner troops that are also wearing multicam. So how do you actually PID? Because now camo isn't a form of PIDing. So now we have like, okay, so how do you distinguish friend from foe? Well, we'll just use colored armbands. And that's what you're seeing now in Ukraine. You have yellow and blue armbands versus red armbands. You've got vehicles with Z on them versus vehicles that don't have Z on them. And they're being repainted because they're repurposed Russian vehicles. And it's just like one big clusterfuck of camouflage and the bastardization of the original idea. Like, is it even a thing now? What's the next step? If enemies and friends are all wearing very similar looking camouflage, how do you differentiate who is who? How do you deal with the advancements in technology in terms of modern warfare? So night IR signature and thermal signature and what the best way is to conceal an individual from those sorts of threats because we're predominantly seeing them on the battlefield now. And it was just a side thought little rant that we had about camouflage and effectiveness and the loss of, or not the loss, but more so the evolution of how it's changed and lost its roots in the modern battlefield. Because technically, printed camouflage has only been around since 1920. That was when we figured out how to print it like an actual pattern onto fabric. So what does the future hold for camouflage? I mean, there are some cool companies like Relve Camo that have been doing thermal sniper nets and veils that seem to be very effective against like commercially available drones that have thermal cameras. And is the future adaptive camouflage? Are we going to see invisible halo suits running around? I don't know. It seems a little far off right now and way too cumbersome, but God damn people just spray your gear the right colors and break up your outline traditionally and don't invest in all of these fad ultra cool sponsored 
511 origin whatever camo fads that are coming out like don't adopt first gen camo it usually doesn't work just spray paint your shit just rattle can it all or even better like send it off to someone that knows what they're doing and get it seracoded by a professional that can do ir seracote stuff perhaps um all of our stuff we like sending it to brian at pro 2 customs he's down in arizona he's a good friend of ours he does a lot of ak fake light mags if you can't get an actual bake light you can get a fake light that's done seracote the same style and it all looks great go check him out at pro 2 customs he is a master at hand applied seracote so yeah that i guess concludes kato's little little rant about camouflage and and the little story about how nerding out over camouflage led me to meet Brian Bishop. So I think we met in 2015, which was right before Brian went off to uh, school in San Francisco. But we had a mutual friend. We met up, started talking about design things what he was doing, started talking about projects he wanted to do, and I had little interest in it. I was like, oh, okay, so if he's going to sell off the camo pattern and do things with it, I want to know where it goes to and whatnot. So I started buying clothing from Beyond, which he was working with at the time, and just testing the shit out of it and being like, hey, Brian, you need to change these things because they kind of suck on your pants. And he was like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. And I just... Every, like, eight months or something, I'd give him an update on, like, just a long-term review on these pants. And I think I just badgered my way into Brian's DMs as, like, someone that actually has some form of input and isn't completely retarded and is willing to help and is, like, willing to spend their own money to help. So if anyone needs a tip on how to get through selection, that's, like, you can't take that route because I already did it. But anyway... Yeah, we just started conversing a lot on equipment and failures in equipment in terms of design aspects and how things could be improved. And that led on to me helping him out with the launch of the Orion Design Group onset, which is the weapon light that Brian designed. So a couple of years now, was it last summer when he needed help to get all the assembly done and to QC everything and to do some media. I was like, Hey dude, if you're in the Valley, I'm here. I'm willing to help. Let's just sit down, bust all this shit out. And so we did. And from that point it was like, cool. What's the next project after we got lights out? Oh, I need to start a podcast. And I was like, Oh fuck. Okay. Do you know anything about starting a podcast? Nope. How about you? Nope. And we both went off and asked our respective human groups what they knew and how to go about doing it. And both just like plunged straight into how to edit, how to figure out guests, how to distribute it onto all the networks and figure all that shit out. So that led to me being the producer and doing all the media and editing stuff for this podcast. And I'm not going to lie, I was like totally Asian anxiety, kind of reluctant at first and was unsure of everything. But like Brian and Matt Vincent said, a rising tide raises all ships. And the only thing you have to do is just fucking start doing it. So 
we did, and that led to where we are today. I think we just crossed our 50,000 downloads mark where everyone's like, oh my God, that means you have an audience ship. And to to, to us, it feels a little weird because that's a certain benchmark that people are like, oh, once you get to that point, you can start doing other things with your podcast. And we're all just like, man, all these people around the world have listened to us for the last year talk about the most benign, random, trivial controversial bullshit topics that we just are willing to talk about every week and we can't appreciate our listeners enough for helping us on that journey and get to where we are today so for that i thank you everyone if you have questions please go check out our instagram lone element actual underscore actual and go send us an email info at loneelement.com I believe next week we're going to have Nick Betts on the cast, who is one of our good friends of the cast. He is an amazing and talented photographer, videographer, and artist. I'd go check out the episode that we did with him back in the day. So I think that wraps it up. I tried to let you guys know a little bit more about who I am and how I got involved with Lone Element and ODG and all the other things related to Brian. Sorry if it was a little awkward, but hey, deal with it. And we'll catch you on Monday with Nick Betts for another episode. Peace. Anyone who runs is a BC. Anyone who stands still is a well-disciplined BC. <laughs> Need more help. <laughs>